Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrion, a host on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking to Adam Kotzko about his book, Neoliberalism's Demons on Political Theology of Late Capital, published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. No problem. Okay, so let me just start us out with a question I always ask, which is how did you arrive at this project? Well, I had been um, writing a book about the devil, um, the history of the figure of the devil in Christian theology. And um, as I was finishing up that project, um, I had had a longstanding interest in neoliberalism. And it just occurred to me one day um, to ask on Facebook, does anybody want me to come speak at their school about the devil and neoliberalism? Um, Almost like assigning myself this project. Um, and uh, a few different places were interested, um, including uh, one, one colleague in Australia who invited me. And, you know, since it's such a big ordeal to get over there, um, we also set up several um, talks there. And so I kind of got to workshop this um, idea in the midst of a, in a, a vacation in Australia, kind of. Um, and so that spurred me to do the um, the initial draft of the concept, which was like a journal article. Um, and as events unfolded in 2016 and went in ways that I did not anticipate or hope for, um, I found myself returning kind of again and again to the concepts that I had worked out um, in thinking about uh, neoliberalism. And so that spurred me actually to attempt to write an entire book on it that I didn't want to just talk about neoliberalism. I wanted to talk about the kind of mutation or um, sort of purported break that was happening um, when Trump became president. Yeah. And you mentioned, I think in the introduction, um, uh, poignantly, that uh, academic critiques of neoliberalism are memoirs. And yeah, you lay out some personal reasons that had been really formative in your interest in reaction against the neoliberal order. Right. Yes. I've, um, first of all, like on a, on a more personal or biographical level, before I even uh, became an academic, I grew up outside of, um, Flint, Michigan. And, um, my grandfather was one of those classic, uh, GM workers who just kind of got in on the ground floor and due to the union and due to training that was available, he was able to um, make a great middle-class life for himself and for his family, uh, even without a college education. And I was um, born in 1980, which was obviously the year Ronald Reagan was elected, but also the year that Roger Smith from the Michael Moore documentary, Roger and Me, became CEO of GM. Um, and that these kind of um, the neoliberal agenda of breaking down unions, of um, 
orienting companies exclusively towards shareholder value rather than a broader consideration of the different constituencies that they served. And of course, the, the outsourcing and globalization, all of these things combined to basically take what was one of the most prosperous areas of the country um, and turn it into a hollow shell of itself, where in the city proper of, of Flint, um, like the lack of clean drinking water um, has reduced the city to a, um, a, a condition that we associate with the third world rather than with the richest country in the world. And of course, when I became an academic, I quickly realized that the same type of forces were conspiring to destroy and undercut one of the few fields where that kind of secure employment um, still existed and to orient all of our work towards um, the life of uh, the job rather than the life of the mind. Um, and so kind of all of that um, combined to uh, make me very uh, interested in the concept of neoliberalism uh, in general. And I uh, wrote a few things that were kind of about pop culture and how they relate to neoliberalism. Um, but this this project was the first time that I actually was able to do something more properly scholarly and academic um, uh, on the topic. Well, I'll, uh, I'll lob an easy question at you, uh, I'm sure, which is, what is neoliberalism? Yes, this is a, a topic that many people purport to be just deeply, unfixably confused about. I think it's my number one pet peeve online. People, what is neoliberalism? Oh my God, I can't understand it. Um, it's super simple. It is the um, political and economic agenda starting in the late 70s that aimed to remake as much of society as possible in the image of the competitive free market. Um, sometimes this took the form of, you know, for instance, breaking uh, union power, which impeded the ability of, of business to just do whatever they wanted. Uh, sometimes it takes the form of privatizing public assets to make them into a kind of faux market, um, as has happened with like the, the post office or with the, um, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, things like this, like creating a fake market. Um, sometimes, and Obamacare also was a good example of this, that instead of providing direct public health insurance to everybody on the model of Medicare, um, instead, people are actually mandated to uh, participate in the market for insurance by the government. Um, I think that this is, that Obamacare is actually a great example of um, neoliberalism that shows that one of the truisms um, that a lot of even scholarly commentators have fallen prey to um, is not true, namely Many people think that neoliberalism is simply just uh, Ayn Rand-style um, libertarianism, such that, for instance, um, the bank bailouts are hypocritical, therefore, because the state intervened in the market instead of just letting it run its course or whatever. But I think Obamacare is especially illustrative of the state's role in kind of creating and cultivating these markets. The state under neoliberalism is not just the... Uh, backing off or backing away or receding from the scene. The state is very active, almost more active than it was under the post-war order. But what it's active in doing is trying to set up and cultivate and maintain markets in as many places as is humanly possible, and then a few more places as well. 
Yeah, one of the things that at least strikes me as kind of unusual about neoliberalism is for an ostensibly neutral term, it's difficult to find other examples in which the adherents of that philosophy so thoroughly refuse to admit that it even exists. And I think that the reason for this, in a way, it's a brilliant move um, because it asserts that neoliberalism is not some specific thing. It's not a specific agenda. It's nothing in particular that people are advancing. It simply is reality. It simply is the way things work. Um, it, there's a famous quote from Margaret Thatcher, who was, um, of course, the, the most instrumental in bringing about neoliberalism in the United Kingdom. Uh, she basically says, there is no alternative, that this particular form of capitalism is the only game in town, and that believing that there's something else possible is at best delusional and at worst dangerous. Um, and so I think that there probably are neoliberals who sincerely believe that the neoliberal agenda that they embrace simply is political and economic reality and that there's no room for commentary or no room for debate just because it's an empirical fact. I think the smarter and more self-aware ones um, do this uh, denialism as a strategy to uh, discredit in advance any alternative to neoliberalism. Because if you, if you treat the neoliberal order as this underlining baseline condition that everybody must work with, if you deny that it's a specific agenda advanced by specific people for specific reasons and just take it as reality, you've won the battle before you even need to fight at all. Um, so you, in a way, you've got to hand it to them. Um, uh, but I think it, it's produced a lot of uh, confusion and frustration and um, especially for me personally, because every time I see somebody on Twitter uh, say, oh man, I don't know what neoliberalism is. Is it even a thing? Like, I cannot help but react, even though I know that it's not going to be a productive or helpful conversation. Yeah, as so many conversations on Twitter are. Um, the, the flip side of the sort of denialism, I, I, as I read it in your book, is right people who take neoliberalism too seriously, moving in the other direction. And you say that these people take uh, neoliberalism both more seriously than it deserves and intends to be taken. And I found that to be a really interesting turn of phrase, particularly the intends to be part. And I'm wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that a bit. Um, yes, I think that what I was referring to specifically there is the libertarian rhetoric that wants to demonize the state and say the market is the only thing, like we should get the state out of the way uh, so that the market can work. That is, um, that's just propaganda. And that's feeding into like classic American distrust of the government in order to legitimate this specific political agenda that the government is actually doing. Um, I've often said that libertarianism is basically neoliberalism for idiots. Um, and this is why I get disappointed when I see even great commentators on neoliberalism like uh, Wendy Brown and David Harvey, like virtually all of them do this. They find an instance where the state is intervening forcefully in the market, most often a bailout. 
And then they say, basically, like, you know, the, the bully from The Simpsons, ha ha, I caught you, you were hypocritical, you were supposed to be doing just the free market alone, and yet here you are using the state to prop it up. And they don't realize, seemingly, that those libert- that libertarian rhetoric was always just a smokescreen for a very active um, state-oriented agenda, um, that basically they, they have fallen for this kind of simplistic, um, uh, the simplistic version of neoliberalism that nobody ever intended to implement. Now, one key aspect of neoliberalism that you emphasize a lot is the way in which it blames people, be it um, for capital or for moral failures. And this might be a good time to bring in one of the central framing devices of the book, which is your concept of quote, demonization. Right. This is a concept that I draw from um, my reading of, of the history of Christian theology. Um, and basically, uh, I, I focus in on um, the narratives where theologians are trying to account for how the devil could ever rebel against God. Um, supposedly, the devil was a perfect angel he had direct knowledge of God. He could witness, you know, uh, God Himself in a way that human beings cannot, and yet somehow he believed that he could somehow win against God and that he could rebel against Him. And there's various like mythological narratives that try to account for this. But as the centuries wore on and the theologians grew more and more sophisticated. Um, they arrived at a very strange and abstract story where the devil somehow um, was created in one instant. And then in instant number two, God demands unconditional obedience. And in this completely context-free, seemingly meaningless scenario, um, apparently some of these angels, um, including the, the one that will become the devil, um, rebel or balk or something. And this condemns them to eternal perdition and being permanent enemies of God. And I think that um, this fits so well with the kind of peremptory demands for obedience that we see, for instance, um, in police shootings. Um, Like you always wonder what could, what possibly could um, the victim of these shootings uh, do to have avoided being killed and it seems to be like such an abject level of obedience is, is being demanded that um, they they could never achieve it, that they would never have, um, that they were doomed as soon as the encounter began. And I think that's, in theological terms, that's what happens to the devil too, that he's basically, God set him up to fail so that he would have somebody to vent his punishment and fury on. And that's an extreme case. But I think it's foundational for the kind of strange moral logic of Christianity, which, in my view, carries over into capitalism with its emphasis on individual free choice and um, on kind of uh, submitting to the will of nature or, uh, as, as supposedly is embodied in the free market. And it seems to me that we see consistently throughout the neoliberal order that people are given just enough free will that they can be to blame for what happens, but not enough to actually change their situation. 
So, for instance, if you take student loans, to use one that's you know relatively innocuous compared to obviously a police shooting or something, um, you see uh, when when people talk about potentially like um, forgiveness of student loans or letting pe- releasing them from them or, or providing free college, it, it's always a rhetoric like they chose to take that on. They chose to, to, to go into that debt. They chose to, to go to college and they should honor the debt that they've taken on. But we all know that everything in our culture conspires to make students feel as though they're forced to go to college or else they're going to be absolutely economically destitute. They have no ability to bargain for price, really. Um, and so they kind of have to take out uh, as much uh, debt as they possibly can. Um, and um, at the time that they're signing it, they have had basically no financial obligations and have no understanding of how money works or of what it's going to be like to have to pay this off. That, yes, they are formally free in the sense that nobody literally held a gun to their head um, and made them take out this loan. But it sure seems like it, it, the next best thing has happened. Um, so they are to blame. They're on the hook for these, these loans whether they actually finish their degree or not. And um, this is all justified because they, they freely chose it in some you know, abstract way, um, even though there doesn't seem to have been anything that they could have done differently to escape it. Yeah, and there, there does seem to me to be such an interesting parallel, as you suggest. I mean, if you look at um, City of God by um, St. Augustine, you see that he is clearly extremely exercised by this question of free will, and he marshals a, a whole range of extremely complicated and, I think, kind of preposterous examples um, and explanations with things like efficient causes and whatever, but he ultimately settles largely, as you said, on um, uh, on God's omniscience, right? So, like, you have free will, but, you know, God knows what choices you're going to make. And whenever I read it, I'm like, okay, well, if he, if he knows what choices you're going to make and just kind of lets it happen without any possible uh, way of deviating from that, it, it sort of seems a little hollow. And it, it definitely strikes me that in the neoliberal or libertarian rhetoric, there is, on the one hand, this emphasis on, you know, quote, free will, but on the other, this sort of moralized emphasis on like, you know, you should have known what would happen with that choice, right? It does, it seems like a parallel to me. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you should have known or you should have thought of that is is the fundamental law of neoliberalism. That's the ultimate justification for anything bad that happens to somebody. Like, think about whenever you hear somebody say, you know, he had a choice. Right. Did that person do the right thing? Is it like he had a choice and he just hit it out of the park? That was awesome. Like, no, that person is always being punished. That person is always being harmed in some way. The person, in many cases, is dead. And the choice only serves to retrospectively say they deserve what they got. And I think that the example that you give from Augustine, where God knows everything that's going to happen, and yet he treats our actions as though they're free, I think the only reason to have free will in that case is so that God is justified at punishing people. Um, that's one of the main uh, moral intuitions of Christianity, and it's one that it's hard to think of any alternative to it. 
which is that you're only morally accountable if you have a free will. Um, and it seems as though God is implanting free will and setting people up in these situations so that, so that he has the ability to punish them. And really, this is where I started to see the connection with right-wing populism, that it's, it's an, a, a further development of this logic um, because it seems as though they're openly stating the goal of government and the goal of politics is to make sure that the right people get punished, that the right people suffer, and that somehow the spectacle of suffering, of the right people suffering, finally, is what hooks people into this new uh, form of politics. Yeah, um, and this would be a good time to, I think, tie into sort of second um, task of the book, uh, which is to intervene not just in the field of neoliberalism, but also in uh, the field of political theology. So uh, wondering if you could kind of briefly introduce the basic tenets of that discipline for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Right. Um, the term political theology was coined by uh, Carl Schmitt in the 20s. And the book that he wrote under that title um, had two main features that have really informed the discipline. The first is that he insists that there are strong systematic parallels um, implicitly in any social order between um, the theological or metaphysical realm, uh, between the way people think of how the world is structured in the deepest way, and the structure of the political order. And his big example there was um, in early modern Europe that there was a correspondence between the way people thought of the king as an absolute ruler, as the absolute sovereign who has the ability to suspend the law whenever he chooses, and the idea of an absolute all-powerful God who is able to um, violate the natural order through miracles. That those two concepts in two seemingly unrelated realms of theology and politics converged. And he also, he used this as a way of making a historical claim about the trajectory of European thought, which is that modern political concepts are secularized theological concepts. And so the discipline as it took form um, had two main prongs, if you will. One was finding these parallels between political and theological systems Often a lot of the, um, the attention was focused on the idea of sovereignty or absolute power, um, as Schmidt had, had pointed out, and also the question of secularization and of the kind of theological legacy that might still live on in modernity. And I think political theology, as it has historically been practiced um, up until maybe the last decade or 15 years, has been super dominated by those two, two questions. It's about sovereignty, divine and, and human sovereignty, and secularization, basically. And over the course of um, you know, the 2000s and the 2010s, um, a kind of new, vision, broader vision of political theology uh, started to emerge where you wouldn't just connect theology to politics, but you connect it to economics, you know, so that the invisible hand of the market is parallel to the divine providence uh, where he indirectly is managing everything. Um, and people started to grow interested in 
questions, you know, like theological roots of, of the concept of race, um, you know, a lot of other, you know, broader topics other than this kind of monomaniacal focus on uh, sovereignty and secularization. And so I was really in favor and really fascinated um, by that broader version of political theology. It seemed like it could do so much more than the, the narrower version. And I thought that applying the tools of political theology to neoliberalism would be a great test case for kind of uh, developing an explicit methodology to justify um, that that broader concept. And um, if I haven't talked too long uh, at, in this juncture, I'll say that I, so the, the core insight that, that motivates my broader version of political theology is that I take the observation of Schmidt and many, many others, that there are parallels between this theological realm and the political realm. And I ask, why would such parallels arise in the first place? And my claim is that the reason they both wind up in, in similar places at, 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 at parallel historical moments is that they're both kind of trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to justify a, a specific um, order of things um, in the face of evidence that seems to undermine its uh, legitimacy. So, for instance, the theological system, um, it isn't content with saying God's the biggest and strongest and therefore he's in charge. It's just a fact. Sorry, you just have to submit to him. Theological discourse wants to say, no, God is worthy of being God. We should worship God because he's good, because he's in, he does a good job of managing um, the world. And the challenge to this is uh, the problem of evil which is that if God is all-powerful and he is all-good, then only good things should result. But we know that's not the case. We know that evil and suffering and injustice happen all the time. Similarly, on the, the political side, um, very few political orders are just uh, content to say, I'm the strongest, suck it up, right? They want to say, we deserve to be in charge because we offer certain benefits, uh, we have a long pedigree, like whatever it is, they want to say, we deserve to be in charge. And yet events constantly happen that are outside of their control that seem to counter their claims. And so I say that these, the problem of legitimacy and the problem of evil are fundamentally the same problem in these two different realms. And that at any given historical moment, both of them will tend to um, converge on the same type of uh, solutions because they're facing the same kind of problems. Now, what would you say is the pervasiveness of neoliberalism? Because on the one hand, this is sort of a philosophy of state and a cultural ethos that you claim has pretty thoroughly taken root. But on the other hand, even before the Sanders movement, it seems clear to me that many people at least ostensibly reject its account of the highest form of freedom expressing itself through market exchange. But sort of on the other hand, again, there, there's a rigid version of structuralism that would see, you know, individuals as, um, yeah, sort of subjective instantiations of their cultural structure and therefore might minimize the role to which people can, you know, kind of 
freely or individually opt out of the neoliberal sort of mindset. So um, how totalizing in society has neoliberalism been in your reckoning? I think that it's the goal of neoliberalism is clearly to um, capture all areas of life and to shut down any alternative before it starts. You know, at the time that Margaret Thatcher said that there was no alternative, um, that was not actually true. Um, the the Soviet Union still existed. There were much more robust welfare states or something. It was not a description, but a threat. And the neoliberal order has largely successfully carried through on its threat to create a situation where there is no alternative, um, in large part by kind of colonizing the, the ostensibly left-wing party in most of these uh, countries as well, um, so that you can't vote against it, for instance. But I think what is most powerful about neoliberalism is that it is so oriented towards the economic. Um, you can't opt out of neoliberalism because then you would starve to death on the street. Um, you can't just decide not to you know, compete on the market or like, I'm going to start um, following more authentic values or something like that. Even if you reject it, the system is set up to make you um, go along with it. Um, so even people who are, you know, see through the facade of, you know, the continual self-branding and self-marketing and the, the need to constantly compete and reinvent yourself, you still have to do it in order to maintain your livelihood, in order to have opportunities, in order to have any freedom of movement at all so that you're not just reduced to a, a sheer uh, precarious gig worker, which seems to be kind of the bottom rung of, of the employment situation. Um, in, under the system now where you just are promised nothing and you have no security and no control over your circumstances. So the system is set up to entrap us into, um, you know, endorsing it in a way. But I also think that the way that it uses this kind of quasi moral appeal to personal responsibility and personal choice, even when we know better, I think a lot of us, myself included, we're susceptible to that kind of like guilt tripping or that kind of like self blame that it gets us at a gut level, even if in our minds uh, we know it's not true. So for instance, um, I graduated with my PhD when the financial crisis happened and I had like job interviews. I had a lot of applications out and all those jobs were pulled. All of the jobs that I was, I applied to, were pulled because of the financial crisis and the subsequent recession. And it never got better um, over the next couple of years either. And so I'm lucky to have my kind of marginal precarious position in academia at all. Like I realize that there was basically no chance of anything better coming out of this. And yet I still sometimes rack my mind of like, what did I do wrong so that I didn't get one of those few tenure track positions or something like that. Where did I go wrong? Where did I make the wrong choice? Even though I know in my head that it's just, that it was completely beyond my control, I'm still susceptible to this idea that I could have done something different, that I somehow failed, that it wasn't just uh, bad luck of the draw. Um, and I think in that way, like neoliberalism kind of preys on people's moral instincts and also their desire 
to believe that they're under control, that they they have uh, control over their circumstances, even if only negatively. Even if I did it wrong, that meant that I at least had some influence over the process instead of it being just sheerly arbitrary. In your second chapter, you move towards prior accounts of neoliberalism. And I think it's probably fair to say that Wendy Brown gets a fair share of criticism for her account of neoliberalism and its purported antagonism to democracy. Yeah, um, I think Wendy Brown is one of those like kind of productive foils. Like, I don't think that I could have written the book without her. I think her account of uh, neoliberalism was the most philosophically informed that I had found at that point. And like it, it shifted my thinking about neoliberalism into a totally different like space than it had been before. Um, but there's so many things about that book um, on doing the demos that are just hugely questionable in my view. And the first and most foundational is that she takes from Aristotle and Arendt this kind of absolute qualitative distinction between the political and the economic. And the political is the realm of freedom and democracy and self-determination, and the economic is the realm of necessity and slavery and uh, just everything bad. And she's saying neoliberalism is trying to destroy the political realm and make everything into the economic. And there's, there's a certain level of truth to that, um, but it's just so starkly stated and so simplistic that it, it leads her down like really weird roads. Like she worries at the end that if we don't act fast, people will forget what it was like to even want to be free. Everybody will be neoliberal drones who are fully economic and just kind of humming along like little economic robots. And we will have just like lost our chance for political transformation, like permanently. It seems like she thinks neoliberalism could really destroy the political. And to me, that just is impossible, not only empirically, because the youngest generation who has known nothing but neoliberalism, and I'm kind of like the oldest of of that cohort, um, they all hate it. (laughs) Like, they're the very people who should be most indoctrinated and most kind of um, in denial about any possible change or any possible alternative. And yes, there are mental blinkers that people of that age have, you know, like I see that in my students, I see that in myself, but they are the most prone to want a radical change. They're the most open to things like socialism. And that simply should not be the case if Wendy Brown's account is true. And I also don't know what it could possibly mean for the possibility of political contestation to just like go away and be completely foreclosed. Would we stop being human? People are always going to argue about things. People are always going to dispute. It's, I think she grants too much power to neoliberalism to kind of um, fulfill its most uh, ambitious and world-shaping aims, when at the end of the day, neoliberalism is a human philosophy created by human beings in a finite world where things change. Um, and I think um, if you look at her most recent book um, on, I'm sorry that I don't know the title right off the top of my head, but it's about the right-wing reaction in the context of neoliberalism. She basically has to retool her entire account of neoliberalism on the fly in order to account for um, the, the rise of Trump and right-wing reaction and all this stuff that shouldn't have been able to happen. 
according to her previous account. And um, some parts of that book are more convincing than others. Um, but basically, I find, I, I think that it, it gives me the impression that she's kind of flailing, trying to come up with how to account for what has happened. Whereas I think um, in my account, which is based on this moral logic and this kind of um, the, the trap of freedom, that it, it allowed me to account for the rise of, of right-wing reaction pretty seamlessly um, without having to retool my previously, my previously published version, which um, was written before Trump had become president. As you briefly alluded to in that answer, the I mean, I would say the central thesis of this chapter is that most scholarship on neoliberalism has been plagued by this artificial binary between the political and the economic, a concept that you refer to as uh, Arendt's axiom. And um, yeah, if you just want to talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, this um, Arendt's axiom, uh, this is uh, named after Hannah Arendt, the uh, uh, great philosopher, um, one-time student of, of Heidegger, um, and uh, in The Human Condition, which is a great and, and fascinating book, she draws on um, a kind of idealized version of Athenian democracy to say um, there are two spheres of human action. Uh, one is the political, and this is a realm that is characterized by freedom, by deliberation, um, by self-chosen projects, and the other realm, which is is kind of a necessary evil uh, to underlie um, the political, is uh, the economic. This is the realm of the household, of economic production. In the Athenian system, it was the realm of slavery. Um, and she says, basically, we have to have the economic as a kind of underpinning, you know, for survival, for the foundation. But the real thing, the real thing we're after is the political, which is the, the most authentically human realm. Um, the realm of necessity and production and kind of um, household management, that is a realm that we share with the animals, but the political is what is distinctively human. And this is where true human flourishing happens. And her basic narrative is to show how we sadly lost track of the political over the course of, of history, that we keep falling away from uh, the ideal that the Athenian system uh, kind of instantiated. And I think she her target is the the post-war like consumer culture in America where everybody seems to be content to simply, you know, as long as they're bought off with their consumer goods and their middle class lifestyle, they don't have any, you know, uh, political contestation to do or something like this. Um, and I think that that there's so many questions I have about this. First of all, why should we be taking our ideals from a slave society um, a brutal imperialist power uh, such as Athens was? And why is the norm, the supposed ideal, why is that such a flash in the pan historically? And why were things organized differently the majority of the time? If this is what the norm is, if this is what the ideal is, why don't we see it more often? Um, and I just, I take that as evidence that it's basically an artificial standard um, it's, it probably isn't even descriptive of the reality of Athens itself, at least most of the time, and that we should, um, to the extent that we need to rely on this distinction between politics and economics, which 
you know, we do. We it, it's hard to talk about the modern world without at least drawing some type of distinction between them. But why do we need to talk about it in terms of this like falling away from this perfect ideal where the two were were in the the exact right balance supposedly? Um, that's the um, axiom of uh, that the two are absolutely distinct and that the political is clearly the superior and more important one and the only true human um, realm of flourishing. That's the axiom that I just think um, completely distorts Wendy Brown's argument and in different ways the other arguments that I that I talk about, including those of uh, uh, Giorgio Agamben. Yeah, and, and one, I think, good example that you talk about of the political, but also the demonizing processes of neoliberalism is the uh, figure of the welfare queen who um, in the sort of moral and political discourse, particularly of the 80s, but also of the um, early Obama period, exercises a, a sort of totemic role in that kind of moral and political panic. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Right. I mean, it's a, it's a great historical irony that, for the most part, the great failure and the great kind of corruption of the New Deal pro- project was that the majority of welfare programs um, were structured so that Black people could not get benefits from them. Um, welfare programs historically have always been oriented towards um, the white majority to the exclusion of anybody else. But... In the late 70s, after the civil rights movement and after all of these um, new, you know, new laws guaranteeing equality of treatment had been passed, suddenly um, there was an ability for uh, black women, including black single women, to get um, support uh, for their children and their families from uh, welfare programs. And as soon as this happened, the discourse shifted so that blacks were the sole beneficiaries of welfare programs, that um, that this was just an instance of the poor white people, their hardworking you know, families pay their taxes, and then black people basically take advantage of their generosity. So it's setting up this paranoid narrative um, where um, getting government benefits is, first of all, definitionally associated with um, demonized black populations, that it is always somehow fraudulent or amoral or, or wrong to take these benefits. And they took one specific case of a woman who was able to, like, I, I'm not sure what the details are. I'm sure they were inflated um, uh, in any case, but one person who was able to cheat the system, and they took that to be the norm, that this system enables cheating. It's rewarding the undeserving therefore it needs to be gotten rid of and this is i mean it's a it's a political argument it's an economic argument but it's fundamentally a moral argument um, albeit one that's based completely on lies and paranoia Um, but it was hugely effective Um, the the figure of the welfare queen the fact the very fact that we still know the term that it's still familiar just shows that this is one of the most like successful bids of um of political propaganda, maybe in American history. And I think it's, it's amazing in a way because um, it's as though Ronald Reagan wanted to prove my point for me, that the, the treatment of the welfare queen is so similar to the treatment of uh, demonized populations, such as, uh, you know, in witch trials, that it's like, 
he's just trying to make it obvious for me. Uh, the theological parallel is just so strong. Right. And, and you, I think, sort of root this in the demonizing work in as much as the sort of economic side, right? In as much as neoliberalism encourages not market exchange, but market competition, which necessarily entails this kind of active fostering of inequality. Right. Yeah. If it was just a matter of market exchange, then that'd be one thing, you know, then, then in a way um, everybody could win because, you know, they get their, their needs met, you know, the classic narrative of, of why we need a market is so, you know, like the farmer has a cow, but he doesn't have any corn or whatever. So there can be a kind of equilibrium in that system of trade in competition. However, there has to be winners and losers. And I think that the neoliberal system evolves to the point where um, the fact that the market produces winners and losers is not like some type of necessary evil. It's not, you know, we, we accept that it produces winners and losers because it's so much more efficient or it creates more wealth or whatever. And therefore, we need to look after the losers um, with the extra wealth created. No, the, 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 the separation of people into winners and losers becomes a positive good, that it's good that the losers are shown to be losers that um, we need to make sure that they don't get anything that they don't deserve. Um, you know, Milton Friedman and, and Hayek and these other like kind of neoliberal like theorists did often say, okay, we can't just let people fall into total destitution and die on the street or something. But that's about all that they're willing to offer. That if you can't succeed, if you can't make the right moral choices, if you can't take care of yourself, then you don't deserve to be taken care of. And the good thing about the market is that it allows us to make these moral uh, distinctions between the deserving and the undeserving. So that one of the the flaws of the market in most uh, people's minds is taken as a positive good. You have a line in uh, in here, which I thought was so great and so true if you spend any time on Twitter at all, which is that, and I'm quoting here, the social order alternates between declaring the plight of disadvantaged groups a deserved result of morally culpable decisions and congratulating itself for generously providing the opportunities for individuals to succeed despite their background. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could riff on that a little bit because it was very poignant to me. Yeah, I think um, neoliberalism, the neoliberal order has provided opportunities for exceptional individuals from, um, you know, disadvantaged communities to uh, make a life for themselves and to rise to the echelons of power. Um, For instance, you know, Barack Obama would be the the number one uh, case that that through his uh, unique charisma and talents, he was able to rise to the pinnacle of American power, you know, despite um, being black and despite being, uh, you know, the child of a single mother and all of this kind of thing. But those people are not used as examples to show like, oh, wow, all these other people might have had this potential too, if only they weren't so disadvantaged. It kind of is used instead as a weapon against those communities saying like, you know, Barack Obama could do it. Why can't you? It just shows that the vast majority of those people are not willing to put in the work or the, or, or, um, you know, that they're, that they must deserve what they got because if one of them could succeed, any of them could succeed. Um, it's just another example of the kind of the way individualism is, is weaponized to 
um, denigrate anybody who um, has any disadvantage or failing at all, and also uh, to justify um, social structures of oppression, that they're all the result of personal choice. Um, and the very fact that the, the order can reward individuals of these disadvantaged groups actually works against the interests of those groups um, in the long run. Now, in your third chapter, we hear more about the religious right, uh, a subsect of the neoconservatives. And the relationship between neoliberals and neoconservatives might be a little confusing for some people, since um, even as you say, they share some aspirations and values, but diverge in other critical ways. So can you break down in a little bit more granularity how these groups are related to one another uh, and how they interact with one another? Yeah, I think the you could say that that Reagan was already like neoconservative in a sense because um, he was like reinventing conservative politics um, compared to what it had been previously. You know, in the in the broadly neoliberal mode, I think the fact that the U.S. discourse uses liberal to mean basically like FDR style politics, um, whereas most of the world uses liberals just liberal to mean free market politics. That produces a great deal of confusion in the terminology here. Um, but I kind of seize on the distinction, the, the American distinction between conservative and, and liberal to talk about the two, um, the two wings represented broadly by the Republicans and the Democrats. And it seems like both are able to collaborate um, in the neoliberal project broadly conceived because um, they share kind of a basic um, trust in the free market as a moral order and in free market com competition as um, revelatory of people's true moral worth and giving them the opportunity to show their true moral worth. It's really a question of emphasis, um, whereas the conservatives um, tend to uh, highlight the punitive aspect of the market, that it's screwing over the people that need to be screwed over. Um, liberals tend to emphasize the opportunity that it, it, it um, represents. And this can often be literally the same policies can be pitched as both the conservative and liberal version. Um, you know, like when the war on drugs was first proposed um, under Reagan, it was basically like, these people in the ghettos are basically like subhuman scum. They're criminals. They need to be cleaned out. You know, they're they're so addicted to drugs that they that they can't control themselves, and they're violently attacking everybody. And in fact, if they use drugs when they're pregnant, their babies are born that way, and they're unfixably violent. You know, the crack baby, uh, which turned out to be a myth. Apparently, every all of the the children who were born when their mother had used crack in utero. Um, grew up and were totally normal. So there's another myth dispelled. But the liberal take on this, you know, including with like the infamous crime bill that became such a, a controversial point in the 2016 election, um, they say, you know, what we're doing um, by stepping up policing in these neighborhoods is allowing a space where the good people can finally thrive without being dragged down by these uh, criminals and where people can finally take responsibility for their communities uh, without having to live in fear and all of this kind of stuff. Substantially, it's the exact same policy, but the, the rhetoric is either based on um, 
the conservatives emphasize what's punitive about it. That's what they're getting out of it. The liberals um, emphasize the opportunities it gives to individuals uh, to transcend their circumstances and to like prove them their worth um, without um, being weighed down by these artificial obstacles. And I think that that's what has allowed um, both parties to work together relatively seamlessly throughout the neoliberal order, despite the fact that Republicans uh, continually act as though uh, the Democrats are are basically, you know, illegitimate. You know, the fact that Clinton was impeached for a relatively minor crime compared to what Republicans routinely do and the way Obama was treated and stuff like that. Despite the fact that they're being treated that way, Democrats still see enough common ground on policy to be able to sit down at the table um, and work with the Republicans. Um, And I think that that shows the fact that even Trump has been able to uh, successfully, you know, pass budgets with a Democratic Congress and things like that. Um, that shows how profound the continuity has been, um, even in the Trump era of the neoliberal kind of bipartisan agenda. Just returning to the question of the sort of religious right, how do you account historically for this, what you might call marketization of the religious right? Because, you know, in the early modern period and even the medieval period, right, that is not the case at all. There's a profound distrust of market competition, not of hard work, but of of markets and the excesses they entail. And if you look, for example, at like the uh, statutes for colonial Puritan Massachusetts, you find the opposite of a free market. So how does that process unfold? I think it's kind of a two-step process. The first is the association of communism with atheism. the, you know, post-war anti-communism um, really emphasized, you know, the 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 kind of Christian values supposedly associated with capitalism, as opposed to atheistic atheistic communism. Um, and but I think also the second step is then the association of welfare programs with um, with my, blacks and minorities um, that basically. Um, the religious right as we know it started as a reaction against um, against uh, busing and basically against anti-segregation. Um, it is such a white movement, such a suburban movement um, that kind of gives the game away that they're, they're wanting to maintain this kind of white Christian nationalism. And the free market seemed to be a tool for doing that, first of all, for defeating godless communism, and then also the market would supposedly ensure that uh, black people didn't get uh, rewards and opportunities that they did not truly deserve, which is how they viewed welfare programs. And I have to say, you know, I've written a great deal about um, evangelical Christians and the religious right in the last few years, uh, because I came from that background. And even though I had left it and was very cynical about it, I was still shocked at the fact that Trump enjoyed such support from, you know, my people. And I think I've always kind of um, unintentionally downplayed the racial element of it, in part because it simply didn't come up explicitly when I was growing up. Like, church was no more segregated or than anywhere else in life. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in an all-white school district, essentially. 
church didn't stand out as being more segregated than anywhere else. And there wasn't explicit race rhetoric, but kind of looking back and especially uh, looking at how much they have been entranced by the increasingly openly racist appeals of Trump, I can't help but acknowledge that um, that that was uh, a key part of the movement, even if it was largely in the background when I was in that community in the, in the 90s. Now, your final chapter moves us closer to the present, and it provides a sort of chronology of neoliberalism with various stages like combative neoliberalism, punitive neoliberalism. Can you talk a little bit about what these phases entail and also uh, what phase you might say that we're in now? Yeah, the, I take this uh, this chronology from uh, Will Davies, who's a great commentator on on neoliberalism um, as well, and you can read his stuff in the London Review of Books uh, almost every two weeks. Um, but he lays out three stages: the combative stage, the normative stage, and the uh, punitive stage. The combative stage is um, basically the Reagan and Thatcher era where neoliberalism has to be very aggressive and very forceful in order to implement the radical changes to society that it, it, it proposes to do. Um, the normative stage comes basically when the Democrats or the, the, the Labor Party under Blair take up the neoliberal project and try to kind of rationalize it or make sure it's truly fair to make sure that you know, the, the playing field is truly level um, that they're trying, they accept it as a norm, and they're also trying to normalize it in the sense of of making it a truly um, uh, making it fulfill its promise of, of providing these reliable moral um, evaluations of people. The punitive stage um, begins in the two thousands and really comes to a head in the um, aftermath of the financial crisis, which basically. Um, it's a stage when neoliberalism stops making positive promises, um, when it just starts only dishing out pain and deprivation because of all of these debts that have gone bad, because of all of these uh, the economic wreckage that has happened, um, and essentially just uh, the market becomes a way of meeting out the punishment to everybody who is now uh, almost everybody is unworthy. Um, as shown by the the housing crisis and things like this, um, I would say we're still we're still kind of in the aftermath of that punitive stage. Uh, that in America, Obama represented an attempt to get back to the normative stage after the financial crisis, but um, in part due to Republican resistance and due to the uh, federal structure in the U.S. where the states had to implement austerity, even though the federal government was trying to do stimulus, that there was no real um, recovery from, from the financial crisis. And I think the mainstream Democrats have continued to kind of fail in their imagination, um, to continue to fail in their... Um, recognition of how much the system has let people down and how badly Obama fell short of his promise. And, um, and I just worry that we'll just kind of continually tip back and forth between an Obama style attempt to get things back to normal, which would be like the status quo of the nineties. Um, I don't think that's ever coming back, nor would it be desirable. 
and these kind of uh, right-wing backlashes um, against the inevitable failure of the Democrats to achieve this. So I think we might oscillate back and forth between like an attempt to get away from the punitive and then just a reassertion of the punitive. Um, so, I mean, I guess a week from now we'll know whether we're going to just keep on uh, penalizing people or whether we'll uh, try and fail to get back to normative. Um, but yeah, the outlook is not great, frankly. Yeah. And you frame, I mean, in, in sort of keeping with the, the book as a whole, you frame a lot of the reaction, particularly on the right, uh, once again, in theological terms, this time using the, uh, using the lens of heresy. And this is because heretics, right, react against a social or re- religious order not to discard it, but precisely to save it from corruption and thereby purify it, if I'm getting that correctly. Right, yeah, we view we tend to view heretics as rebels or um, subversives or something like that. But if you really look at what a heretic is trying to do, they're trying to save um, the religion or whatever it is from itself. They're like, you know, more Catholic than the Pope or they're, you know, uh, more Christian than the Christians themselves in their own minds. And I think that this is the model for understanding uh, Trumpism, is that he's not trying to break with neoliberalism. Um, None of them are. They're trying to make it work for the first time. They're trying to set it up so that it really does sort the winners from losers, but the right winners and losers this time. Um, So Trump sees that, you know, um, white communities are not, Um, succeeding to the extent that they should. And he's like, that must mean that the system is rigged. Or he thinks that the U.S. isn't, you know, um, winning to the extent it should. That means that the international order is rigged against the U.S. We need to get a new deal. Uh, We need to get a good hard bargaining man in there to really um, broker the the proper deal that will deliver the right results, which is, of course, that America will always win. White people will always win. His allies will always win. If he doesn't win, it means that the system is rigged. But he does believe in a fair system. And certainly nobody would dispute that he believes in the value of competition. Like clearly he views every exchange in life and every moment of his life as a kind of zero-sum competition. So I think in a way, uh, Trump is is the most radical neoliberal who's ever lived. Like he's uh, somebody who in a way fully absorbs it and fully lives it out. And I think it's no... Um, accident that it's so repulsive and ugly uh, when we see it um, embodied in a human being like that. Yeah, and, and speaking of Trump, uh, this ties into my next question, which is, um, what is uh, the, um, what do you say, like the ambiguous relationship between the neoliberal order and electoral democracy? Right. I think when neoliberalism is um, is first being established, it needs to run the table, basically. Um, So like both Reagan and Thatcher uh, won their elections by margins that were far beyond what we, uh, what we see in the, in the last several decades. Um, Their election was a a landslide. You know, Reagan was like a historic landslide in his first election. It was crazy. Um, They're also, I mean, in other countries, they're willing to, you know, uh, carry out their agenda through coups or something like that. Um, but, uh, in that first stage, in any case, you need to have kind of a, a monopoly on power in order to implement, um, the policy. 
And it's preferable for it to be electoral because an order that's founded supposedly on endorsing free choices needs to um, have that kind of political foundation as well. Um, but once it becomes established, um, the relationship with electoral politics becomes more ambiguous because on the one hand, they want everybody to freely endorse the neoliberal order because that's what should happen, but they don't want people to be able to vote against it. And so what happens is there's a convergence uh, among the different parties so that they're all kind of presenting um, a very slightly altered version of the neoliberal order, and basically you can't vote against it. And this has the side effect of producing much, much closer elections um, so that um, since since um, George Bush Sr.'s first term, um, the only president to win more than 51% of the vote um, was Obama. In the last 30 years, he's the only one who's, who's peaked above 51% of the vote. And that was much lower than George Bush Sr.'s um, numbers that he put up when he's widely regarded as a, as a failure and, um, and an unpopular president. Um, so elections just keep getting closer and closer. Um, both Bill and Clinton, Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, won only a plurality of the popular vote. Um, Bill was able to take office. Hillary was not. Um, but they just the 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 system is converging on these closer and closer elections because it's harder and harder to tell the parties apart. Um, and that's intentional. That's that's uh, that's best practices um, because the you need the electoral um, endorsement of the system, but you don't want them to be, to be able to vote for anything else. If you can't arrange for two fundamentally similar options to run, then the other option is to have an unacceptably right-wing candidate so that you are voting, you know, like Macron versus Le Pen or Hillary versus Trump. Um, in both cases, uh, with a gun to their head, the populace voted the, the correct way, which was not to uh, endorse the, um, the the crazy right-wing figure. But unfortunately, due to the vagaries of the U.S. system, uh, Trump was able to take office in any case. I don't view Trump as an inevitable outcome of neoliberalism. I don't think necessarily that there will be another smarter Trump who will come along or something like that, that people say, but it is a predictable outcome of neoliberalism because neoliberalism repeatedly is asking us to um, show up to elections where nothing is either, either nothing is at stake or the election is basically um, uh, they're asking us to vote for saying this election never should have happened. This, this option is completely unacceptable. And uh, most of the time, people are going to vote the right way when you put a gun to their head like that. But people do act out. Um, and apparently enough of them acted out in the last election that we wound up with this uh, disaster of the last four years. Yeah, and in your answer there, you used the phrase um, or the word they to describe what neoliberals are doing. And I want to ask you about who they is. And if you take neoliberalism to be a form of political economic power, there are usually two accounts of power that you can um, draw from in general, like, right, one is a version where 
the ethos is so thoroughly um, inculcated in everybody that it just is sort of self-reproducing and doesn't require any particularly elevated form of political agency. And then there's another account which um, is sometimes associated with conspiracy or with versions of elite politics where a cabal of powerful people in ways that are intentionally mystified are pulling the sort of pulling the strings, right? And a small group of people with extreme agency are responsible for what looks like a uh, a sort of you know agentless instantiation and perpetuation of a particular order. So, do you have uh, an account of which of those you you are um, tend to gravitate towards? I think I would maybe do one that's kind of in the middle. Um, like yes, the neoliberal ethos is very widespread. Um, you know the the best practices, the kind of business jargon, like all of these kind of things are. Um, but it does require continual state intervention and, and continual reinforcement to keep this going. And I don't think we need to look very far to see who this the secret cabal is. There is no secret. Um, you know in. Chicago, for instance, uh, Mayor Daley was the mayor for decades, all throughout the the neoliberal era, and he imposed broadly neoliberal policies on the city. Like Joe Biden was a senator throughout the entire uh, neoliberal order, and now he is poised to hopefully become president, um, promising to implement neoliberal policies. You know, like Nancy Pelosi. Um, like you could name, there's been so little turnover in like the centers of power, um, in in Congress and in the executive branch. The same people cycle back and forth between, you know, depending on who the the Republican or the Democrat is. Like there is an elite class of neoliberal kind of um, politicians and administrators who uh, do, you know, like people like Larry Summers. I'm more familiar with the Democratic people. Um, I don't want to make this sound like it's all Democrats, obviously, but those names are just coming more to mind. Um, and so, like this, the political class has been made up of largely the same people. They've been pursuing the same policies for much of the same time. Like, there's no conspiracy theory necessary. It's happening right in front of our eyes um, it, through the legitimate political. Um, institutions. Um, this is another thing where I just get so frustrated where people are like, well, who is neoliberal or how, how is this happening? Like, it happens in Congress every year. Like, this is not difficult to see. Um, and of course, there are like CEOs and there are, you know, theorists and luminaries um, like Tom Friedman or something like that who, who help push things along. Um, but it's mostly a kind of insider club of elite politicians and, and businessmen who are not secretly conspiring. They're openly talking about what they're doing and they're doing it in the wide open and everybody can see it. Yeah, and, and with the caveat that maybe in the last few years we're seeing something different, why do you think in general the reaction against neoliberalism or let's say the response to neoliberalism's failings has been so much more virulent and frankly dangerous on the right versus on the left i think 
it's because uh, the neoliberal order has systematically shut down any avenue for change that's to the left. Um, the, the U.S. left has been so beaten down and has no electoral home, no, no prospect of ever taking power. And, of course, there's also the example of the Soviet Union, which is uh, continually used to kind of browbeat and shame anybody who wants a left-wing change. Oh, you want to be the Soviet Union then? Uh, that it's been such a byword of, of failure and oppression and things like this that, that people are kind of afraid to propose anything that's to the left of center. Um, due to the association with that undesirable model. Um, so I think basically the, I, the neoliberal order has always taken challenges from the left more seriously than challenges from the right, and it has largely succeeded um, throughout its uh, roughly 40-year history in continually um, you know, su- submerging and repressing the left to the point where it's increasingly difficult for people to uh, to ag- acknowledge a, a, a right a left wing alternative to neoliberalism. But they have always been much more comfortable making um, common cause with the the right. There is a a strong overlap. You know, the there's something naturally hierarchical about the outcome of market competition, and so they um, kind of have a affinity with right-wing authoritarian leaders or, or parties that want to establish a proper hierarchy. And um, basically, I think neoliberalism is a fundamentally right-wing project, even if left-wing parties have tried to moderate it. Um, and so, yes, I think um, the reason that the right-wing reaction is more virulent is because the neoliberals continually empower and make excuses for the extreme right and uh, try to placate them. And we know the extreme right will never take yes for, for an answer. Well, to close out this fascinating conversation, I want to generously ask you to do something that you explicitly refuse to do in the book, which is to prognosticate about the future of neoliberalism and for the reactions against it. Yes, it's um, in the U.S., I think it's very unlikely that a more left-wing vision will emerge. I think this last election has shown us how much the neoliberal elites have a lockdown on the Democratic Party, which remains the only possible electoral home for the left. And the blackmail of you get either us or Trump or something like that is super effective. And, you know, I vote, you know, I sent in my mail-in ballot for Biden, even though I hate him because I hate Trump more. So this is a scam that is going to continue to work. Um, I don't see within our existing constitutional arrangements in the two-party system, it's very difficult for me to see how the left is going to um, gain any institutional footing, especially since it's so weak and disorganized um, in in, in America. So I think if there's a possibility of any left-wing option, it's going to have to come from outside of the U.S. and probably outside of the West. Um, and I just don't have detailed enough uh, knowledge of political events uh, and forces in these different countries to be able to, to prognosticate on that level. But I do think that the as I supported Bernie Sanders, I voted for him in both primaries, um, I wish I could vote for him now. 
but the moonshot for the presidency of the evil empire was never a realistic option for the left. That's just not how things work. Um, and I think until a genuine um, alternative emerges, most likely somewhere else in the world, probably all that people can do in the U.S. is to keep um, holding their nose and voting for Democrats as a, as a means of harm reduction and kicking, kicking the can down the road, unfortunately. All right. Well, on that grim note, the book is Neoliberalism's Demons. It is essential reading for anybody who wants to understand our current political moment. And uh, Adam, thank you for joining me.